Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you back to our podcast. Today we're continuing our study of the Gospel of John, and today we've reached chapter 7. We're kind of getting to the climactic elements in the Gospel of John. Chapter 7 and 8 can be linked under the theme or the heading of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll be discussing here in detail. John 7 begins in verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also behold your works which you are doing. For no one who does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. John opens this passage by telling us that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, and then his own brothers say, Hey, Jesus, why don't you go down to Judea and show yourself off? And, you know, any prophet that wants to be a a prophet and be well-received, surely you're going to have to show yourself off in Jerusalem. This is incredible. His own brothers know that the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus, and they're saying, Hey, Jesus, go show yourself off in Jerusalem. A strong indication that even his own brothers are not believing in Jesus. Now, I think this is radically significant, by the way, because we know that Jesus' brother James becomes not only a follower of Jesus after his resurrection, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, someone who did not believe in his own brother during his lifetime, and now, after his brother's dead, suddenly becomes a radical believer of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. John tells us in verse 2 that the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was at hand. This is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're about six to eight months before the crucifixion of Jesus. Now the Feast of Tabernacles looks back to the wilderness experience under Moses. The Jews would live during the Feast of Tabernacles in tents, and they'd pitch these tents all around the countryside to commemorate the wilderness experience during the time of Moses. Now the Feast also, however, looked forward to the Jewish hopes of a second exodus. The Feast ran for seven days, but there appears to be some indication that they had added an eighth day to the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's not certain if that's what John's referring to here later on in the chapter or whether or not it's the seventh day, but we'll, we'll look at that in time. This may have been one of the most popular feasts in Jerusalem. Josephus describes it as an especially sacred and important event. And it may have been the principal feast of Israel, partly because you know, the Jews were, were required to go to Jerusalem for three feasts. It was simply unreasonable. Uh, Passover, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The problem was it was difficult to get there for the Feast of Passover because of the time of the year. It could still be raining. It could, the, the seas could still be rough if you're traveling from Rome or from Greece and, and other places there. So it, it became more reasonable to come here early in the fall uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during this feast, there was dancing in the courtyards of the temple with massive lights, these massive menorahs that were lit. Uh, in the in the court of women, these four I mean, you have to like twenty five feet tall. You take a ladder up to to light them up, and, and it illuminates the entire city during the entire throughout the evening. And you got to remember, in the ancient world, they don't have city lights, and so it's dark. Once the sun goes down, it's it's a, and so when you light this these menorahs up, the entire city of of Jerusalem becomes illuminated during the middle of this feast. Also, they had these various ritual offerings of water. And what they would do is they'd take a, a golden pitcher and they'd fill it with water from the Pool of Siloam. Now, the Pool of Siloam is about 600 feet below 
the city of Jerusalem down below the city of David. So they would march down to the city of David and go down all the way to the bottom to the pool of Siloam. They'd fill these uh, water pots up with, with, uh, with water, and then they would carry it back to the temple itself with this big processional led by the high priest. Now, as they're proceeding, they're, they're singing the, the, the Hallel, the Psalms 113 to 118. There's, there's a trumpet blast are being sounded, and this great singing of these great Psalms, 113 to 118. Now, on the seventh day of the feast, they would proceed around the altar seven times. And when the choir would read Psalm 118, every male pilgrim in the choir would, would shake a, a lalub. It's a a willow and myrtle twigs t- tied to a palm. And they'd shake that in their right hand, and in their left hand they would raise a piece of citrus fruit, which is a sign of the ingathering harvest. And they'd cry out, Give thanks to the Lord. Now this would culminate in Psalm 118, verse 25. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Now the problem was, was that Jews cannot utter, utter the O Lord part. It's not permitted to speak the divine name. So what they would do is they would substitute the Aramaic, Anihu, uh, Anihu save us, Anihu grant us success. So they've been making this massive processional from the Pool of Siloam up to the temple. They proceed around the temple seven times, around the altar seven times. They're pouring out water and they're crying out, Anihu save us, Anihu grant us success. Now also in the background here, before we go further into the text, is Joel 3 verse 18. And it says that in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk and the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out to the house of the Lord, to the valley of Shittim. Jesus responds then to his brother's claim. Hey, Jesus, go down to the city of Jerusalem for the temple for the feast. And he responds by saying, sorry, my time is not yet at hand. Now, this is not the same expression that we're going to see later on in this chapter that we've seen a few times before. And we'll see a few times later on as well, where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He says, my time is not yet at hand. Now, let's skip down to verse 14. When it was in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple to begin to teach. So Jesus doesn't go to the feast until about halfway through, perhaps because he's trying to avoid death. They want to kill him. So he knows if he shows up for the entire seven days of the feast, that might have been too much time in Jerusalem, and then it's not going to go too well. So he waits till about halfway through the feast to go down to the city of Jerusalem. Skip down to verse 19. He says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, it's perhaps the case that some of the Jews don't know that some others are trying to kill Jesus. So they're like, wait a minute, verse 21, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus says, look, I did one deed and you all marvel. He's probably referring to the healing of the invalid in chapter 5, which he had done on the Sabbath day. Verse 23, Jesus says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because I am made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So verse 25, therefore, some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they were seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. So they begin to suggest that maybe this man is the Christ. But uh, maybe this can't be, he, he can't be the Christ. After all, we know where this man is from. He's, they're going to give three suggestions as to why Jesus doesn't fit the properly held conceptions of the Messiah. The first one here is, well, we know where this man is from. Now, of course, they don't really actually know where this man is from. This is another example of, of John's use of irony, right? They, they know where he's from. You don't know where he's from. So verse 28, Jesus said, So you both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. 
I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Verse 30, the Jews were therefore seeking all the more to seize him, and yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31 then says, But many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees then hear about this muttering, and they uh, sent the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Jesus. And Jesus replies by saying, I'm with you for a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, and you shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews again misunderstand Jesus. Where I go, you cannot come. They begin to think like, where, where, where is he going to go? Maybe he's going to the dispersion. This is probably a reference to the diaspora. The Jews have been scattered throughout the Roman world. and he's probably, They're probably thinking about the Greek-speaking Jews around the world, and maybe even some of the Gentile converts to Judaism, also known as the, as the God-fearers. Now, verses 37 through 39 kind of bring us to the climactic moment here in the early part of the Gospel of John, kind of summarizing everything that we've been seeing about with Jesus' references to Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the Spirit, and the woman at the well, uh, I would give you living water, and all these references to water now kind of find this climactic moment and explanation here in John 7, 37 through 39. It says, Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, the Jews stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, it's very significant here to have in the background the reference to the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 14, which was read at the Feast of Tabernacles, verses 8 and then 16 through 21, puts the Feast of Tabernacles in this end times context. Zechariah 14, verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will be summer as well as in the winter. Verse 16. Then it will come about that after that any who are left of the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them, and it will be plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day, they will be inscribed in the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. So John seven thirty seven then begins with anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me. Now, in the middle of this ritual associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, which was inspired by Zechariah 14, and notice the references to water and rain and sea and, and living waters that will flow out of Jerusalem. And that, the, the reference to living waters will be very important as we get into John 17, 18, and 19. But in the midst of this feast where they're, they're making this mighty processional down to the Pool of Siloam and carrying this water back up and, and, and circling the temple and pouring water out of the temple, Jesus says, look, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now, there are actually two ways to read this particular verse, uh, verse 38. Uh, one is a Christological way, meaning Jesus says, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. But there's also the, another kind of an Eastern reading that some manuscripts have. 
And it says that the believer is actually the source of living water. So it would read by saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and let him drink who believes in me. As the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, I personally think the best reading here probably is the Christological reading, that the, this living water is going to flow from Jesus. And I think that's, that's fitting in the terms of the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jesus. Jesus' pro, his proclamation that, look, I'm the source of living water. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see later on when we get to the cross. The key is that these eschatological waters or these end times waters, that these last day waters that are going to flow from the temple are actually going to flow from Jesus himself. Now, John tells us in verse 39, by this he meant of the Spirit, because the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this tells us now that this key in the Gospel of John is going to be this pointing us toward the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would actually make the argument that the Holy Spirit is just as prominent in the Gospel of John as Jesus is, in that Jesus' coming was all along pointing us to the fact that, well, I'm not going to just leave you because I'm going to give you the Spirit. So even from John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born of, of water and the Spirit. And John 4, this woman at the well, you need, you need this living water. And now we see in John 7, this he spoke of the Spirit, whom he had not yet given. So now we know the coming of the Spirit is going to be the central motif here in the Gospel of John. Now verse 40, some of the multitudes, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And so others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? And here's our third popularly held conception that, that's their excuse to not believe in Jesus, and that is the offspring of the Messiah is from David, and therefore he's from Bethlehem, and surely he's not from, from Galilee, is he? Verse 44 says, And some of them wanted to seize Jesus, but no one laid their hands on him. Now verse 45, The officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said, Why do you not bring him in? The officers answered, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered him, You have not also been led astray, have you? None of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And now here's another example of irony, right? Because we know that Nicodemus has already come to Jesus. He may even be a follower of Jesus. And certainly we know by the end of the Gospel of John that Joseph of Arimathea is a follower of Jesus. Verse 50, Nicodemus said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? They answered and said to him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Uh, the irony, of course, is that it appears to be two prophets in the Old Testament that come out of Galilee. Both Jonah and Nahum appear to be prophets who come from Galilee. So maybe they're saying, don't you know that the, the prophet doesn't come from Galilee? And of course, in that case, they're wrong as well. We'll pick it up next time with chapter 8. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.